Motorcycles and Misfits here at the Recycle Garage in sunny, sunny Santa Cruz. Cruz. And it is sunny today. How cool is that? <laughs> it's always sunny. <laughs> oh, I know. It's always sunny in my heart, darling. So, today we have another episode of... You know where we're going, Jim? Dun, 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 dun. dun. Emma's History, History Hole. It's dark and it's deep and it's full of cobwebs. And Slightly mysterious. We have, I've got a fabulous show this week. I really do. And it's at a request from one of our long-time listeners, Ken Haylock. Hey, hey Ken. Ken, hey, shout yeah. out. Ken has made multiple requests, and quite rightly so, because when I read this story, I'm like, this is fantastic. Young lady called Carolyn Sells. Now, Carolyn Sells made quite an achievement and very iconic figure in the world of motorcycling on that side of the pond. Joining us tonight, before we get into her story, I want to let you know who's in the garage with us tonight. So, I'm Emma Darling. Naked Jim. Liza here. Hey, this is Yuri. Now, for those of us who are regulars at the garage and know Yuri, we can tell you. He is our resident Manx Grand Prix racer. So... On with the show. I am so excited about this. Carolyn, are you there? I am. Hi, how are you? Hey. Hey, Carolyn. Fantastic. Well, Hi. Carolyn is on Skype from her home. Uh, you live in the Isle of Man, don't you? I do. I do. I live in the West, not far from Ballacrain traffic lights. Fantastic. <laughs> well, the time is currently 1.15 p.m. in California, and I'm guessing it's 9.15 in the evening for you. It is, yeah, it is. So, Carolyn, would you like to tell our listeners what you did that makes you such an icon in the world of motorcycling? <laughs> well, um, I've done several things, but uh, <laughs> in, 2000, <laughs> in 2009, which is now, what, nearly eight years ago, uh, I became the first woman ever to win a motorcycle race on the Alaban TT course by winning the Manx Grand Prix Ultra Lightweight Race. That is a fantastic achievement. And bear in mind, Carolyn, most of our listeners are American. Ken obviously isn't. But for our American listeners, would you be kind enough to give us some history of... I'd like history of the Banks Grand Prix, but some history of the Isle of Man and motorcycle racing, because there's a whole culture that goes with it, isn't there? There is, yeah. Um, road racing, which is where people close everyday roads that people drive on to the shops, to their homes, to wherever. Road racing has existed on the Isle of Man now for well over 100 years. Uh, TT has been going for in excess of 105 years. Um, the Manx Grand Prix has been going on now for nearly 100 years and has been organised by um, the Manx Motorcycle Club for most of that time. Uh, originally, it was called the Amateur TT because 
It was aimed at people who didn't have an international race license, etc. So people could come and race at the Manx Grand Prix with their club licenses at the time. Okay, so that's some history with it. So it's a very, very old event. And in a hundred years, you're the first woman to win, right, win it. This is extraordinary. Um, in an earlier MS History Hold, we talked about Beryl Swain, who I'm sure is a name that you're familiar with. Um, but <laughs> even so, to actually win it is such a huge achievement. Well, yeah, because actually, um, at the Man- Beryl Swain uh, raced in the TT. And when she raced in the TT in the 60s, she did it for one year. And then the organizers of the TT decided that as a woman, she was not strong enough and she was not capable enough. What? And they revoked her license. They took her license away. No, they took it away and they wouldn't let her do it again because she's a woman. Purely because she's a woman. No, just because she's a woman. (laughs) Outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. But worse than that, the Manx Motorcycle Club, who organised the Manx Grand Prix road races, didn't let a woman race on the TT course until 1989. So the year that I won, yeah, was 20 years, almost to the day, since women had first been allowed. And that was uh, Gloria Clark, who was the first was. woman to enter. Yeah, there's a lot of contention surrounding the whole thing. Gloria was the first woman to actually race. There was another woman called Liz Skinner, who uh, she she had practiced first, I think it was. Uh, but Gloria was the first woman to actually start a race because she was a newcomer. So, um, and she was in the newcomers' races. And Liz's race wasn't until Wednesday and Gloria's was on the Monday. So there was a bit of tension there, I think, for a long time. But yeah, officially, Gloria was the first woman ever. It, it's fascinating, to, just just the stuff you've done recently. But take us back a little bit. Um, oh, take I, a note. Let's go back all the way. I think some of the some of the best <laughs> stories might might be coming out of your childhood. So tell us about your introduction <laughs> to motorcycles. Um, my dad started racing when I was little. I'm, I'm, well, I'll be 44 this year. So I was born in 1973. My dad started racing in 1979 on old classic bikes that he used to build in the shed outside. And, um, that was it really. He threw a little bike together and we used to go off racing. Um, so most of my childhood was spent trawling around in an old clapped out transit van going <laughs> down, the, down the motorway following some another clapped out transit van to Cadwell Park or Brands Hatch or Mallory Park you know and then playing in the woods while dad raced around this little bit of tarmac for a little while on his old bike you know and that was it that was my childhood and I loved it it was amazing I'm sure you you must know that all of us in the room and probably all of our listeners are so jealous of your childhood. <laughs> I know, I know. And I, and at the time, I didn't appreciate it. Really, I didn't. You know, you say, oh, God, we're here again. <laughs> what are we doing here? Oh, can so, we not go to the park? You know, can we go ice skating or, you know, 
now when I look back on it, it was amazing. When I was, actually when I was 10, uh, myself, my brother and my parents travelled around Europe on an, an old Norton ES2 and sidecar for a month. And we went all through France, Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg. I think we broke down about 20 times. But each time we broke down, another family stopped and helped us. And, you know, at the time I hated it because I was cramped up in this little sidecar and with a tent and pans and pots and stuff banging around my head. <laughs> but now when I look back at it, I think, what an amazing time, you know, for, for four weeks. And we got all the way back, all the way around Europe, got back to Dover and we didn't, and the bike just expired. So and that was the end of drive that? Down. Yeah, that was it. Somebody had to drive down from northern England to come and pick us up from Dover because the bike just it was like, I've had enough. That's it. No more. And, <laughs> and the thing I wanted to uh, make clear to our listeners, I mean, these were old classic bikes then because <laughs> yeah. that trip, I'm guessing you made sort of early 80s, but an ES2 is a bike from the 50s? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and my dad had built it as well from scratch. So, you know, we put it together from other bits that you found here, there and everywhere. So, so, so yeah. I am kind of curious. So you, you grew up with the racing scene, which is rad. So, but I've noticed the motorcycle racers are all cut of a little different cloth. When did you get yeah. the bug? When did you get on a bike and decide that, hey, I want to race these things? Oh, well, I don't, I don't know, really. Um <clears throat> We had bikes that we used to ride in the back garden. I nearly, the first time I rode the bike in the back garden, I nearly crashed into the greenhouse with everyone watching. I was like, ah, where's the brakes? You know, <laughs> hadn't, hadn't a clue. Didn't know what I was doing. And then we used to go to my friend's farm and we'd ride bikes around his fields and just mess about and crash bikes and hurt ourselves. And then, um, I got a road bike when I was 16. I had an RD50, uh, Yamaha RD53 um, with a micron exhaust. Oh, yeah. Wait, Very nice. When you were 16? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it only took wow. about 45 miles an hour, but you could hear me coming for about 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Dad was like, yeah, yeah, she's on the way home. I can hear her. She's coming. She'll be here in five minutes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, you know, Carolyn, you're about 10 years younger than me, so it'll be no surprise to you that I started off on a fizzy, which is basically the cultural <laughs> success. You know, it was the, it was the, I, uh, your yeah, RD50's have... dad. <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually, uh, well, I think we buried one of them in my friend's farmyard because <laughs> it was, it, it, it expired. Right. I mean, riding 50cc <laughs> mopeds. Yeah, FS1E, yeah. but yeah. riding 50cc mopeds at 16 years old is a rite of passage for a lot of British bikers. Um, but there's a great picture. I mean, we, we, we've we been stalking your history, darling, and we found a fabulous picture taken, I guess, in your back garden. And I'm kind of guessing it's your brother, and he's on a red Kawasaki triple, and you're sitting on a beautiful RD three fifty LC. Oh yeah, that was Elsie. She was she was my dream bike. That was Elsie. That's my cousin Jason. He okay. just the, the the bike he was sat on was an old KH two fifty two stroke triple. I that had one of them. Mine, yeah. Well, he bought it off me, 
and I bought the three um I got the three fifty LC. And um that two stroke triple was a nightmare though. It used to flood all the time. It used to get water in through the plugs. There'd be rain. I, I had all the plugs covered in bits of plastic and silicon and everything trying to stop water getting in. Did you have the problem? Yes. Oh. And of course it never rains in Britain, does it, darling? <laughs> Three hours to get from Derbyshire to Preston one day. I think it was about three or four hours. I got caught in a thunderstorm. And <clears throat> it would go down onto two cylinders, then one cylinder, and then die. And it took me about three or four hours to get uh, 50 miles or so. Nightmare. Yeah, but, but you I know... Love I love the 350 LC. That is... I wish I still had that bike. And you've said that many times. I mean, that is going from a KH250 to an RD350 LC. That's kind of a step up in power. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of speculate. That was your first quick, genuinely quick bike. I'm guessing. It was, yeah. I did a lap of the TT course in 35 minutes on open roads on that. I loved it, <laughs> and I was about 21. <laughs> And that was stick to the speed limits. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you know that when that bike was new, and I vividly remember when they came out, it would pretty much blow the doors off anything else on the road. I mean, it was a giant killer. Yeah, um, and the power band kicked in, yeah. I had, I think, right around 79 or 80, I had a, a 754 Honda, and my friend... Clive bought himself a 350LC, exactly the same as yours, same colour scheme, same everything. And he just would come sailing past me and make me look like I'm standing still. It's very embarrassing because I'm on a 750. And he just comes, <laughs> it's a genuinely quick bike. It's a lovely bike. It's, it is, and I mean, <clears throat> they're so expensive to get your hands on them now. I mean, and, and mine had the all-speed exhaust. I even had... um. I had a race body kit for it as well, which I never put on it. But it would have been an amazing bike to race on the track. So so I'm seeing a bit of a progression here. You know, you, you grow up following your dad around racing. Next thing you know, you're getting bigger and quicker bikes, actually doing some little test runs on the Isle of Man. Um, so talk a little bit about the transition from, you know, when you got that bike and kind of how you found your way to actually racing. Well, like I said, I got my first road bike when I was 16. So from the age of 16, I was doing laps of the Isle of Man because every year we used to make the pilgrimage to the Manx Grand Prix. My dad started racing there in 1985 on his old BSA um, B50, it was. We used to call it Biffa. And um, <laughs> Biffa the B50. So, like, instead of having family pets, you had family bikes with names? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, we didn't have... I wasn't allowed a pet. I wasn't allowed a cat or a dog. It had to be a... It had to have two wheels. Oh, no! And, and when they expired, you buried them in your neighbor's lawn. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you'd been going to the Manx Grand Prix since 85, in so I'm guessing you've, yeah. you're very familiar with it. You're already riding a fast road bike. Yeah, I can see the progression. 
<laughs> well, in 1985, no, I didn't get the 350 LC until 95. In 1985, I was 12. So right. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have a road bike then. But then in 1989, I had my RD50. In 1990, I had an AR80. Then in, oh gosh, uh, 91, 92, I borrowed an a, um, a YB100, it was. I borrowed one off somebody. And <clears throat> I used to take that over to the Alamanos as well. And I borrowed that to do my test on. And then after that, I got the KH250. And then 95, I think it was, I got the 350LC. But, yeah, um, I, I remember going around the TT course at 16 years of age on my little RD50. You know, my chronic neck, Ringing its neck. And... Um, and it, uh, I don't think it really occurred to me then, but maybe a couple of years down the line, and I and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. I want to, I want to do this. But at the time, I mean, it was only 1989 that the first women were allowed to race, you know. And I was 16 then, and I used to dream about it a little bit. And but it never occurred to me that, you know, women weren't allowed to race at that point. It never, it never even struck me. I don't think. It was much. It was a little bit further down the line, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a go at this." And I dreamt about winning it and all the rest of it. But until you do it, you've no idea how it's going right. to be, how you're going to get on with it. How did you get your start in racing? I was I was 27 before I started racing. I I. When I was 16, I was all full of little dreams and stuff. And then I discovered alcohol and I discovered going out and I went to college and I went to university and that kind of took over my life for a while. And then um, and then I got a job and I got a mortgage and the same. Oh, it's a terrible thing. Oh, dear. <laughs> hey, my first house only cost me £30,000. It was great fantastic you know what yeah. happened is is carolyn realized her life wasn't normal and she went to go <laughs> live a normal life for a while isn't that what happened well no not really because the year that i got a mortgage was the year that i took up racing so and i kind of went yeah i'm gonna do both of these things it's like oh shit <laughs> 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 okay I don't, I don't make life easy for myself so uh that was when i started racing 1997, I think it was. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, had you been riding a street bike up to that point? Um, I rode road bikes right up until I started racing. And I started racing in, sorry, not, it was 2000 I started racing. I had a road bike. I had, I progressed from my 350LC. I had a, um, a 400, an NC30 the VFR 400, and that was the road bike I had for a little while. And when I had that bike, uh, I had that for a few years, and then I started racing in, in year 2000, and my first race was just a race over here in the Isle of Man, up at Jerby, um, on my dad's 250, two-stroke, TZ. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so a classic Yamaha 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, Actually, going back. 350. It was the 350, which was an angry, angry little thing. But the first the first race I did was on the 350, and then I, I did a couple on the 250. So. Okay, and you were obviously, number one, you enjoyed it. But how competitive yeah, were you in the early days? I mean, did you did you place well or were you down the field? How long did it take you to get really to the stage where you could win a race? Well, here's the story. The first race I ever did, I was knocked off and knocked out. And I was on the I was about second to last or something like that. I was I was right at the back of the grid. Guy behind me came off his one two five. I was on the two three fifty, I think. And um he came off his one two five at the chicane. I went round the chicane, his bike went straight through, took me out, knocked me out for about five minutes. <laughs> so that was my baptism of fire. That was my first ever race. Wow. Okay, and then so all I remember is trying to get up off the floor, and the marshals were practically sat on my back, and I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) I want this other thing that I I, I suffer a bit from claustrophobia, (laughs) especially in my helmet. So I'm lying face down on the floor, and I'm like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I was trying to get up. And they're pinning me down, going, no, don't get up, don't get up, you've hurt yourself. And I, I'm going, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. <laughs> and I, I feel for you, Carolyn, because I suffer from claustrophobia as well. So, okay, not a good start. I one day and I had a massive panic attack. <laughs> let me out. <laughs> so, um... Sorry. Let's go to your second race. Did you? Um, <laughs> I'm not second to... so professional here, am I? <laughs> no, and these these are the stories we love to hear because it's been a progression for you. Second race, how did you do? Second to last, didn't get knocked out. Well, I got up. This was a two day meeting, and actually, I also caused a little bit more controversy that day because the doctor who attended to me after me being knocked out didn't want me to race again. So I went to another doctor and I said, look, I'm fine. Come on, pass me fit. So he passed me fit. I was allowed to race. And the two doctors fell out and the other one walked off the circuit. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's great. So it kind of set the pattern, really. Good. (laughs) No. I've been to conform. But, um, yeah. So I went out the next day. I don't remember where I finished. I've no idea, but I finished. And I did it. I did it after getting knocked out and everything else as well. So I don't be honest, you at- really don't remember any of it, do you? <laughs> but, you know, when you get knocked off the horse, you've got to get back on, haven't you? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm guessing the, the seed was kind of planted. I mean, you're, from those two days, now you're a motorbike racer. And... You start getting really competitive and getting the bit between your teeth. Yeah, I did um, a couple more races on the two hundred and fifty, and although I love two strokes, absolutely love them. You know, the TZ, it was an E, I think TZE. It was an angry little thing, you know, and it's quite difficult. To manage when you first you're trying to learn the circuits, you're trying to get used to. You know, I'd been always been a road rider, so I used to ride with my toes sticking out, and 
things like that, you know. And there was so much to learn that I was really struggling with the bike. And I had the 400 on the road. So a year later, I'd only done a couple of meetings before that. But then a year later, I I did an endurance race with another girl. And she was doing it on a 400. So I said, I, I, yeah, I'll do that with you and see if I like the 400 on the road, on, on, on the circuits, because I, I enjoy it on the road. And it was a, a lot easier to ride. You know, it's a lot easier a bike to learn on. When you're trying to learn everything else, you're trying to learn a racing skill, you're trying to learn the circuit, you're trying to learn to keep your feet in, to stick your knee out, to put your, you know, it was a much easier bike to learn on. And that's kind of how I started. I got onto the 400s then. And, and although, <laughs> although I did have a bit of a catastrophic start on that 400, I had to start the endurance race and when I set off I got boxed in by two other riders and I fell off and I but I kept my hand my the throttle pinned so I was spinning round on the floor. <laughs> 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 wow. this That's great. I got up, got back on it and shot off. And like two <laughs> laps later I realised I was getting a black flag and everybody's waving at me. I thought, like, oh shit you know better come in you know we have that here we have that here it's called a stunt show yeah (laughs) (laughs) no i i was naughty because i didn't get checked over before i set off again so i had to be checked over by scrutineers and and medical team and then go again so yeah (laughs) so i got a question for you how much of your own wrenching have you done how much yeah wrenching oh well after that this was like so we're talking 2001 when i i started on this 400 race with this other girl and we did the endurance race um that was 2001 then i i purchased uh between me and my dad we've got our hands on another 400 that year and it was supposed to be race ready but it wasn't I got it, it still had like, you know, standard footrests on, it still had standard gear change on, things like that. So we worked on it. It was 2001 was the year that the TT was cancelled because of the foot and mouth disease. And that was also that year they ran a big event up at Jerby Road Race in the Alaban. And I was prepping this bike, which was supposed to be race ready and was nowhere near. So I was outside my mum and dad's house prepping this bike. And Manx Radio came up to me and they were like, oh, what are you doing? I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to have a little go up at Jerby. And um, they interviewed me while I was working on the bike. So I've always done work on my own bikes. You know, I'm not afraid to pick up a spanner, pick up a screwdriver, do whatever. I've renovated houses by myself. I've turned over motorcycles. And then uh, I I raced that bike for a while. My dad used to look after that bike. And then in 2005, um, I had my own VFR 400. And it needed a bit of work. I'd had a bit of problem with my sponsor at the time and after the Manx Grand Prix in 2004 went home and I 
completely stripped the 400 that I had, took it down to just the frame, took the engine out, took everything out of it, took all the footrests off, the handlebars, the, everything. It was just a frame. And I rebuilt that bike from scratch. So I bought, you know, I had a Penske shock on it. There was a guy in America that used to spend, sponsor me with a Penske shock. I got the foot, I, I actually got the um, footrest hangers from America as well. Um, the, the I, I put all new handlebars. I had all the wheels redone, stripped, powder coated. I had stripped all the forks. I, I did everything. The only thing I didn't do was internal work on the motor. But the rest of the bike, I put new cams, a uh, new uh, airbox and everything on it. Completely rebuilt the bike um, that year in my backyard, which was probably about four foot square. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, I love hearing this. I used to park the bike in my transit van that was parked on the pavement outside the front of my house. I used to park it in the van at night time lock it all up this is in the middle of liverpool um and then get it out and and sit on the pavement on a big piece of sponge that i used to have and work on the bike and and then i did other bits out in the backyard but a lot of it i did out on the pavement at the front of my house (laughs) i'm i'm so glad to hear that you're doing a lot of your own wrenching i I see something similar with Elspeth Beard and right. and even I'm going to throw myself in there. I think we all had fathers who showed us stuff when we were we were young and no one ever told us you can't do that. No. And and it's so empowering and I think it's unfortunate how many women go through life thinking that they can't do something cuz you know someone told them Absolutely. they can't or society said they can't. Absolutely. I have three daughters and I tell them every day you can do whatever you put your mind to. You can do it. You don't need anybody to help you. If you if you need help, I'm always here. But you can do whatever you want to do when you put your mind to it. Can they clean their room by themselves? Uh, well, they're five and they're two. The five year old okay. <laughs> <laughs> almost. Because I'm like my my daughter. She's getting there. She's only five and she does it. You know. Yeah, my daughter, who's 18, can do anything she wants except pick up her room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. I have I have better chance of her getting a, getting her to tidy her room than tidy up downstairs because downstairs is everybody's mess. But if she goes into her room, she'll she'll do it for me, and she's very proud. So she's good like that. <laughs> oh, fantastic! So you wrench on your own bikes. That's great. You're on the VFR 400. How competitive was that at the time? It wasn't. It was a standard bike. Um, okay. It was, pretty, it was pretty standard. It was putting out no more than about 59 brake horsepower. Now, that's the bike I did for the first three years at the Manx. Um, 2003 was my newcomer's year, and I finished fourth in the newcomer's race. I missed out on a podium. Not by a huge amount, but the guy that won the race broke all the records, broke everything, just shattered them. And, like, no one had ever heard of him before, and he never came back again. And I was like, you bastard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that ain't fair. The year that I started, why couldn't he do it the year before or the year after? Do you know what I mean? 
Because <laughs> any other year, I would have been on the podium. If you put my time into any year before that, and probably several after, I would have been on the podium first time out. And he came and he did one race. No, he did two races. He did the newcomers ultra lightweight and he did the ultra lightweight and he won them both by a mile. And then and he, he never came back again. So Stuart was his name. I've never met him. I've spoken to him online and I, and I told him the same thing I told you. You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Do you call him once a year just to tell him that? I'm like, you bastard. Why did you have to choose that year? Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's funny. So <laughs> a lot of our a lot of our listeners do um racing on track days at the weekend and here in America it's almost always on a racing course. I mean, not an hour from where we are. We've got one of the best motorcycle race race courses in the world, Laguna Seca. Mm-hmm. Could you describe the Isle of Man course? Because there's nothing like it in the world. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. Even the Ulster, the Ulster Grand Prix, the Northwest 200, not a patch. It's just doesn't come close. The TT course, it's in many ways, it's indescribable. But have a go. If anybody, <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. If anybody in America can envisage, like Kurt Michael Village, you know. You've got 200-year-old cottages either side of the road, probably less than 20 feet apart, and you're hurtling down through the middle of it. There's a big bump in the middle. So you drop down in the middle, and then you come back up, and it's flat out through a little S-shape and absolutely pinned to the stop. And all you can hear is the whine of the bike echoing off the the houses either side of the house, you know, it's just, for me, that's one of the places where you really feel the sensation of speed because you've just got these little houses whizzing past your head at a phenomenal mile an hour. The noise is phenomenal. And then you've got trees, you've got banks, you've got hedges, you're aiming at hedges, you're aiming at houses because you know that when you come over the rise, if you aim at the house, then the road will open up in front of you and, and you'll have a clear road. And, you know, to most people, that sounds bonkers. You know, aim at that, that house there. What do you mean, aim at that house there? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Crazy? <laughs> Yuri, would, is there anything you'd like to add to this? <laughs> well, that's, that, that's a wonderful description and... And it uh, it 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 instantly awake awakens and brings back the sensation that that Carolyn was just describing that that one part of the course, the Kirk Michael area. You really get the sensation of speed with the cottages on either side, and and it uh, it's definitely a, a special moment in time each time you do it and and it you know it can only happen a handful of times if you're lucky with weather permitting that you're put in that situation but it sticks with you uh, you know just yeah. like i said and then and then you're going down Sulby straight you know which is tree lined either side and it's quite bumpy but you're flat in six so on a 600 you're doing 175 
stroke 180 mile an hour on a fire blade or a super bike you're doing 200 mile an hour and all you can see is this tiny little dot of light at the end and everything else is just whizzing past you know well and and how long is one lap well for um for the TT Superbikes, it's 17 minutes. Oh, actually, sorry, Michael Dunlop did it in 1658. <laughs> For me, it's uh, 20 minutes. I think I did it in bang on 20 minutes on the 600. I did it in 21 minutes on the 400, which is 108 mile an hour. Um, and then, you know, there's... There's a lot of different speeds. John McGuinness did it in, <clears throat> he did it in 20 minutes and 10 seconds on a 400. So I'm only 50 seconds slower oh, than wow. John on a 400 ever. We're talking 37. TT. This is 37 miles per lap. Mm-hmm. So I, as just as a racer, that would be so hard to memorize. Every mile. I mean, when you go on a small track, you're memorizing every turn and what gear to be in and come in at this angle and and your line. But for 37 miles, I can't even imagine unless you have an unfair advantage. You have an advantage. You you grew up riding there, didn't you? I do have an advantage because but I never lived here. That's the thing. I never I, I didn't live here until the year that I won. I didn't mm. live here at all in my childhood. And, that, you know, I, I was coming here every year just for two weeks. And that was it. You know, I came here for two weeks and I buzzed around on my little bikes. And then I went home and I came back a year later. You know, I didn't come here and go round and round and round and round and round. I know for an American, I can't. This is This is something I often say to newcomers. It is that, like, I'm, because I'm a rider liaison officer and I work with newcomers, I train newcomers on the circuit, I have no idea. I cannot remember what it's like to come here and not know the place, have where I'm going. Here's a good segue, I think. Yuri, how many practice laps did you get the first time at Isle of Man before your race? That year we ended up with four because of weather. I had one lead lap and three practice laps that, oh, t- pre- three practice laps total so a little a little bit different it's bonkers to me that's bonkers you know because i i i'd done so many laps on ro- on little road bikes that used to take me an hour and a half to do a lap you know so you get to see the scenery you get to look around you get to see everything that's going on around you, all the little landmarks. and Okay, you're not getting them at the same speed as the racer is, but you're mapping it all. You're, list- you're looking at it all. And for me, to, to, to think about somebody that comes over from America, has not seen the place for ever, probably for some people, or has only seen it on the TT game, or has seen it maybe once and then been home for six months before they've come back again. I just, I have so much admiration for anybody that can come and do it from that and do four laps of practice and then go out and race. Do you know, that's a big, that's a big for anybody. I'm just curious. Um, 
I what was what was it like? What was the island? Uh, what was the gossip on the island about this crazy American bringing a dirt bike over? Was there much chatter about that? It was, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> what, the, what the fuck? Am I, am I allowed to say that? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> we encourage it. <laughs> oh, WTF in capitals. <laughs> Is he crazy? What was the first rumor um, you heard about this? Yeah, I mean, I think after that, the Manx Motorcycle Club wrote something into the regulations that meant that bike couldn't really come back again because it probably wasn't a great place to start, really. I mean, how does Yuri feel about it? I I wouldn't have ever done it like that, but <laughs> how does Yuri feel? Well, it it, uh, it was definitely on the goofy side of things, but I had... <laughs> I had been watching the results for years and I had kept seeing that caveat in the rules of, you know, single cylinders welcome. And I, I think I kind of knew in the back of my mind that that didn't really mean bring a, scr- <laughs> a scrambler over, but I didn't see specific language preventing it. So I just thought, hey, let's uh, let's let's try and bring this over. So, Yuri, just for people that people that are listening Say what you brought over to this this iconic historical motorcycle race. What did you bring over from America? I brought over um, two um, single-cylinder off-road motorcycles converted to road racing specification. One was a Yamaha YZ450, and the other was a uh, WR450 uh, Yamaha, both 2008s. And how do you feel about um, what you rode on the uh, would you would you go back on one of the the single cylinders or would you or do you prefer what you did in subsequent years well i think that um i think the the outcome that happened in 2015 was was positive even though it was it was highly stressful on me and it took 4 years of my life to plan it out and to actually you know from from planning it to actually making it a reality was was super difficult. I don't think it's something I'd want to put myself through again, but the results of the 2016 lightweight Manx Grand Prix um, with Mr. Sales um, lap speed and what he had brought to the island, a single cylinder four stroke um, motorcycle, but in a road in a Grand Prix chassis. Yeah, I, but it was, yeah. I mean, it it was definitely purpose built and a and a highly um, sharpened piece of equipment. Um, I think that Mister Sale had a lot of time on the island too, but that takes nothing away from what he accomplished and the speeds he went. So Dan is Dan is yeah, but he did he worked hard on that project. Dan actually won the lightweight race the same year that I won the ultra lightweight race. And those two races were run concurrently. Wow. wow. So Dan and Neil Kent were dicing for the lead the whole way through that year. Uh-huh. And there was less than a second in it between them. Right. Uh, and then I was in the ultra lightweight race, which set off several minutes behind them. But actually, interestingly, 
I was told during the interview afterwards that I finished fifth in uh, within the lightweights as well. Right, overall. So Dan and Neil were first and second, and I was fifth overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great, and it with all the two, yeah, two. 50s and the 400s yeah that speaks volumes about so, about um an, an accomplishment like that so i'm curious carolyn so we know that yuri coming over with these strange bikes he, he met some sort of uh, <laughs> obstacles there but as a woman did you experience anything like that or were you openly accepted well i didn't really experience a lot because I'm very bolshy. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> and I don't take no shit. Like, so. <laughs> I, I've never had a problem like that, to be honest. I've always kind of been, I've always been a tomboy. I was a tomboy when I was a kid. Growing up, I've always knocked around with boys. I've always got on better with boys, which isn't necessarily true because all my closest friends are girls but in a general sense of growing up I got on better with boys you know I was a bit more rough and tumble and I would climb the highest tree and I'd fall out of the bloody thing as well you know um and I didn't mind falling off bikes I don't mind hurting myself I'm I'm not precious in any way so I, I I've always been quite accepted. I did come across quite a, a bit of negativity after I won and people saying, oh, she only won because of this or she only won because of that. But at the end of the day, when I, in that race, my fastest lap was like two mile an hour faster than most of the other people in the rest of the race. Do you know what I mean? And, and can we just talk about that victory, yeah. Carolyn? What were you riding? What was your average speed? And when did you know you won? Well, this, um, right, I was riding an SZR 400. I'd been sponsored by Martin Bullet Race Team for six or seven years. And for the last year that we did it, I, I was always racing Hondas. I love Hondas. I had NC35. Five, um, NC30, and then I had an NC35. And but the trouble with the Hondas is that you can't get them quick enough. It, it's it's it, it's quite hard to get them as quick as the FZR. So um, the FZR definitely has the overall speed on them. So um, I, I stuck with the Hondas for a few years, and then my sponsor and another guy got together and said, listen, we need to put her on a faster bike because she can win this. And this all happened behind my back. And then they came to me and they said, this is the proposal we've got for you. And I was like, right, okay. And the guy had three different FZRs for me to try. And I tried the first two, and I was just like, no, I don't like them. I just can't get on with them at all and I tried the third one which had actually been by been built by a guy called Darren Slew who used to race it in the TT and I think he did quite well he, he finished fourth or fifth in the TT on it um he also raced it at the Southern 100 and it holds the lap record around the Southern 100 and I raced that and I thought oh yeah you know this one's better it wasn't as comfortable as the the Honda at all so, I, but I, 
there was definitely something there. So we worked on it and then we, we brought it to the Manx and I spent all practice week fine-tuning it, raising the seat height, changing the steering damper, lowering the front ride height, changing the suspension settings, fuel mapping it. And we had it working really well by the end of practice week. And we had it that we were only using about five and a quarter litres of fuel a lap. And it had a 23-litre tank on it. So there was we talked within the team and it was like, well, you've got 23 litres. You're only using 21 tops, 21, 22. It's up to you. You can you can go out and you can do all four laps. You can go out, you can do a splash and dap on the first lap or the third lap. Whatever you want to do, it's up to you. And we got the bike so well tuned for the race that I went out and I was so comfortable. Even going into Quarter Bridge on the first lap with 23 litres of fuel on board, which is very heavy. Um, and the first lap was quite slow. It was quite measured, if you like. And after the first lap, the bike started picking up and I got comfortable with the way that it was riding. And I just thought, you know what? I don't need to come in for a pit stop. I've had pit stops before where I've nearly fallen off in the pits or someone's banged into me in the pits. And I thought, I don't need that. I don't need that thrown into it. So I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to hope to God. <laughs> to whatever that it makes the race so I did four laps and I knew at the end of lap two at the end of lap one I was in sixth and at the end of lap two I was in third and the bike was getting faster because we was using the fuel and I went I had to remind myself you're not going in for a pit stop don't go in for a pit stop don't pull in and I went through and I could just see, I, I could almost see everyone looking at me in the pits going, what, what's she doing? Where's she going? And my mum was sitting in the grandstand and my dad had actually started the race with me and I passed him on the first lap up on the mound. <laughs> okay, wait. Can we just discuss how did that feel? Sayonara, dad. <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. Ta-da. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> he was on a 250 and he started about a minute and a half ahead of me as well. <laughs> and I passed him on the mountain. But I resi- I, I did uh, resist the urge to wave. <laughs> I passed him at <laughs> passed him at Bungalow Bridge, so it's like flat out in fifth, so I've got I better not. And and then he that was at the end of the first lap and he was only on the he was on a little Honda R S two fifty and he wasn't like it was very, very windy. It was very, very windy up on the mountain. We had standing water at Glen Helen, at Handley's. We had rain at Parliament Square. We had every weather, practically, that you could throw us in that race. So my dad had had enough, and he retired on lap two. And, um, uh, yeah, but apparently my mum was sitting in the grandstand when I went through on the second lap, and she's like, what, what? Carolyn, come back here. Come back here. <laughs> what's, she, what's she doing? What's she doing? <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, um, I think Carolyn's forgotten to come in. But I did have the opportunity to stop at the end of lap two 
uh, well, sorry, the end of lap three. But so I knew really on on lap three that I was in the lead because everyone was going started to go mad. They were all like every time I come through Quarter Bridge, you know, Brad and Bridge, all the rest of it. Everyone's jumping up, going, Whoa! I think they were all going, Carolyn, what are you doing? You forgot to stop. <laughs> but you got it. I like that. You worry, don't you worry, I've got this sussed. So, yeah, so, and I just had blind faith, to be honest, because I knew that we'd been doing so well with all the fuel consumption and everything else in practice. I'd got the bike working exactly as I wanted to work. Everything was flowing. Everything was going really well, and I was just like, I'm really enjoying this. I'm really enjoying this. And then everyone starts to jump up because you're coming through first and they know that you haven't stopped. So all the anticipation around the circuit, I could feel it. You know, I could feel everyone getting really like, oh, God, what's, what's she doing? What is she doing? You know, and I was like, and I just just buzzed off it, really. You know, and I just, even though it was wet in places, it was raining in places, we had high winds, all of which meant that my fuel consumption was higher than it had been before. I just still thought, I can do this, and I'm going to do it. And you did it. And that's what I did. And you did it. I did. And I did it with enough time. I did it with enough time to have stopped. for. I could have stopped for a splash and dash on lap three. I could have stopped for a full pit stop on lap two. Because I won by over a minute and two seconds. That is amazing. Uh, a pit stop only takes like 40 to 50 seconds on a 400, something like that. So I could have won it anyway, but I just took out all all the anomalies. Just thought, I don't, I don't need that. Right. Don't need that. Don't need that. I'm going to go for it. And you know, Carolyn, no matter what happens from this point forward, it doesn't matter who wins, who does... All roads lead back to you. You're the first. And so your place in history is assured. Isn't that a great feeling? It is. It is. I forget about it now, though. And then and then someone like yourselves brings me up and has a chat with me about it. I think, oh, I get all excited again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should. It's an incredible achievement. And I like the fact, I'm guessing you don't race anymore because you have small children. I understand that. But you've, you've stayed with motorcycling. And I kind of, you're going to spend the rest of your life involved with bikes, aren't you? I am. Um, I, I, I miss, the one thing I miss is going fast on a bike around here. But I can't, I can't do it. I can't have a road bike. Because I'll probably go to Handley's and go flat stick through it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Tractor coming or something, you know? I can't do it, and it's not fair. <laughs> so your role now uh, with the Manx, you said you you advise new riders. Do you take them out on the track and show them how? I do. Yeah. So you you yeah, do get I out do. there still? Yeah, I do, and I mean, I I. One of the reasons that I was asked to be a rider liaison was because I was doing so much of this before I before I won 
because I've always been so passionate about the Manx Grand Prix. I grew up with it. You know, I first came here at the age of 12. I'm 44 in a couple of months. And it's been with me all that time. It is one of the biggest and bestest, most influential, amazing things that's ever been part of my life in that time. And I want other people to enjoy that. I want other people to experience that. I don't I don't want people to come here and be afraid of it, not know what they're doing. You know, I want to give them as much advice and as much help as I can. And I've always I've always done that. And that's why I was asked to be a rider liaison. And I I'll do that for as long as I can, to be honest, because I want other people, I want it to continue. I want to preserve it. I want people to keep on coming to it and I don't want anyone to stop it from ever happening. That's awesome. And since we've been talking almost an hour, I want to make sure, Yuri, do you have any more questions for Carolyn? Carolyn, I had a question for you. Um, where, where, where we live and are um, recording this in our studio, we're close to the um, epicenter of technology here in the United States. And one of the things that computer people talk about here is um, a a word called bandwidth. And what it refers to is how much time you can devote to each one of your passions in your life, be it work, play, family life. And seeing as you were a newcomer in 2003 and to your win in 2009, that's, that's five seasons in between that in between those two events. Um, When you would go home beginning with the 2003 event, you went home. How much bandwidth did thinking about the next year consume your your mind and your time? Did it taper off? Did it just increase over time? Um, did you have to focus on other things at home or did it, did it really um, weigh on you each time you went home thinking about how you're going to return and what you could do better. Yeah, I think I was on a massive, massive come down for about two to three weeks after the Manx. First year I did it, I went home. I did not want to be at home. I did not want to go to work. I did not want to do anything apart from go back to the Anaman and ride motorcycles as fast as I could around the TT course and I was just mega depressed for weeks I just didn't want to be normal I didn't want a normal life I just <laughs> I wanted to go back you know and that was like it was just I'd never experienced anything like it it was just bizarre you know and all I could every time I closed my eyes all I could see was the TT course and and because I did quite well as well, you know, I was just living off that moment all, all the time, all the time. And and then the aim was to get back. So bandwidth, I, I would say a good 75 to 80 percent. Well, it, 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 it really it really makes me feel good to hear that because I thought I was abnormal. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. And it must be even worse for you because you're so far away. Yeah. You can't just jump. When I was I was living in Liverpool, and at the time it was only twenty two pound 
to jump on the boat to Liverpool uh, to the Isle of Man and back. So I just used to, I lived in Liverpool, my, my bike was in the Isle of Man and my mum and dad were in the Isle of Man. I just used to jump on the boat, go over, get my racing fix and then come back again. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can't do that. No, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit more of a journey It's you. It's very difficult to try and separate the feelings generated from the event and focus on work and all the things needed to prepare yeah. for another run. So I still... I still do it now. What is it? It was 2009. It's it's seven and a half years since I won. And I still have nights when I close my eyes and all I can do is visualize my way around the TT course and wish I was riding again. Boy, it's it's almost like a blessing and a curse. Because I've tried it. Yeah, it is. Because I've tried it. I've done a couple of races since I had the kids and I spent the whole time thinking, don't lock me off, keep away, you know, get away from me. (laughs) It's just a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Because the last thing I I need is to look after three small children with a bloody broken arm or a broken leg or, you know, and and it's changed my, it's it's changed everything. I can't do it anymore. I wish I could. You you know, Carolyn, I love listening to the stories you tell, and I love listening to the stories that Yuri's told, um, because Yuri just was in love with with the place when he came back. You could tell it had a a special charm over Uh him. But understanding that your role now is to orient new riders, and the fact that Yuri had, what, a whopping three or four test laps, you know, or practice runs before he had to race. Yuri, if there was a bit of wisdom or two you think should be shared with new-to-the-course riders that maybe Carolyn could impart on them, what would have been some good, gosh darn, things to know about the race before you showed up? Hmm, it's, it's, it's a difficult question, but one of the main things that I've taken away from it um, was if you make it to the to being physically on the island and immersed in what's about to take place i would say the main thing is is to seek out and listen to as many voices that are there to help and try to control the question asking keeping it to a minimum meaning listen to everything everyone has to say and not try and put your two cents in of, I saw this on a video or I saw this on someone told me this, that, or the other thing. It's to listen to those that know and not supersede what they're trying to tell you with, um, inattentive, uh, attention to what they're saying. Absolutely. Uh, uh, uh. And for somebody who had ridden around the circuits for so many years before I raced, it's still, and it might seem like an odd thing to say, it still doesn't prepare you for going around there at race speed. I I knew my lefts from my rights, which is brilliant, which is a lot more than probably Yuri had. You know, I knew what was coming up next, but it still, I don't think it still prepares you it just you know it is just something that is so far removed from anything else that anybody ever does anywhere that it doesn't really prepare you for that you know and the 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 main part of anybody's learning is on track 
you can do as much homework as you like and do do the more you do the better but the biggest thing is is being on track really isn't it wouldn't you say you it, it certainly is and even though this is a very minute and obscure detail one of the things that i had to wait for was coming to the island and literally putting my hand on the pavement in certain spots on the track so i knew what what the pavement was actually made of and how the texture of it would be compared to what I was used to. Just a small thing like that, which sounds so just like a non a yeah. non issue. It it took things like that to make to make things come together. Just just feeling the pavement and 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 the earth there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's a strange it's a strange it's a strange situation to be in and um it's it's important that a clear head is is definitely needed in order to absorb what it is that you need to absorb to um yeah. m- make make a make a good go of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I always recommend that people come on a bike they're familiar with and stick to one bike in the first year because that way they don't have to think about the bike they purely thinking about where they're going and um and what they're doing do you know what i mean yeah yeah because they know the bike already don't come on a bike you're not familiar with because then you've got to learn the bike and the circuit right and come on a bike you're familiar with and then you can concentrate on the circuit right hey karen i'll tell you what i i'm really impressed with with the manx it it seems like it's this community, this club. And for somebody like yourself who grew up attending races and then you achieved, you know, winning a race and now you're still participating, it sounds like something that is really a special, special type of race because there's so many ways to be a part of it. And you've managed through your entire life to be a part of it in, in many yeah. different facets. I've done every bit. Yeah, I've done every bit. I've been the daughter, my other half raced in the TT. So I've been the daughter, the fiance, the mother, <laughs> the the organizer. I've done everything. Um, you know, and it is road racing is a community. People, you know, in circuit racing, nobody wants to tell anybody anything because they might do better than they do or they might nick their idea or they might fucking, you know, bounce them off the line on the circuit but in road racing it's different you everybody wants each other to do it safely and do it well and everybody will give each other help in as many ways as they can possibly do it and so it is it's it's a community do you know what i mean it isn't just a pastime it's a community it's a lifetime it's a life sport. It's fantastic. You know, I'm going to wrap this up now, Carolyn. A couple of things I'd like to say to you. Okay. You're an iconic woman. You're an iconic racer. You know, many years ago in California, we used to have this show mm-hmm. on public TV called California Gold. And California, you remember that show, Jim? California Gold was the best that California had to offer. And you're motorcycling gold. You were Absolutely. What you've done and what you represent and what you're doing now represents absolutely the best that motorcycling has to offer. It's fantastic. Thank you so much 
for spending time to talk to us. Because it's kind of getting late right now, isn't it? I know. I was just going to say thank you because I could sit here and talk all night, to be well, honest. <laughs> um, will you come back and talk to us <laughs> I'm again? I'm really enjoying myself. So. I will. Yeah, I would love to. Um, I would love to. Absolutely. I have family in Utah, so I must make my way over at some point. We've got some good writing. Yeah, if you ever want to come to California, we'd make you very welcome. We have got some great writing here, and we've got Laguna Seca. Well, forget that. Uriel take her, Uriel take her car- canyon carving through the redwoods. On That'd a supermoto. On a supermoto. <laughs> oh, cool. Carolyn, it's been an absolute oh, it's been pleasure. Thank you so much. You take care now. All right, have a good one. Thanks again. Thank, thank you, Carolyn. You. Oh, thank you. Thank you very cool, much. Cool. All right. Bye. Well, that was an awesome interview. That was so amazing of Carolyn to do that. And again, thanks to Ken Haylock for suggesting her. Absolutely. And what an iconic figure. I mean, I love the fact she's this crowning achievement, the first woman to win a race on the Isle of Man. That's beyond amazing. And the fact that she's still a part of it. And I'm so jealous of her life. Right. The life she was born into. You should be jealous. I think we're all a little bit jealous. But what a what a kind and generous person. Great stories. And you can tell we just touched, uh, scratched the surface. But uh, that was a lot of fun. But, you know, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. The world of motorcycling, you get the best fucking people. Right? Totally. I know. Well, yes. And thanks to Yuri for coming by because Yuri, another really cool dude, stand-up guy. We love Yuri. And uh, it was kind of fun the juxtaposition between the two. And very smartly dressed today. Oh, set. God, he was so well-groomed. <laughs> I'm you so know, jealous of him. Do you funny. think, no, do you think he dyes his hair? I used to, uh, I used to think that he permed his hair, but it, he doesn't. No, he's got to have some product in there. No, he's just he, a stud. No, yeah. his he, hair's he, jet black. He's well put together. He's very well put together. He's extremely handsome. So um, I'm just going to say again, uh, thank you everyone for listening and making it this far. And I hope you're enjoying Emma's History Hole, um, this new segment that we're doing that we're really able to go out there in the world and find amazing people. And now we found some people who aren't dead, which is even better. We got to talk to them. Um, you know, so, if I could find a way to bring people back from the grave to interview us, I mean, I would, but we're going to have to stick with that's the last one. Let's go record on their grave. <gasps> Seance. Ooh, at midnight. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, yeah. Let's start making a list of uh, dead bikers. Oh, Evil Knievel. There you go. Yeah. Let's go do a recording on Evil Knievel's plot. I think that would be amazing. So uh, for any of our listeners, if you have somebody you think is amazing and the world needs to know about uh, and you want us to share that information, then why don't you contact us? And the way you do that is if you go to MotorcyclesAndMisfits.com. From there, you'll find a link to our Gmail, RecycleMotorcycleGarage at gmail.com. Send us a message or you can uh, call and leave us a voicemail. That number is listed there. You can also find the links to Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, everything you need right there. So just go on down to MotorcyclesAndMisfits.com. On that note, I think we're ready to get out of here. Um, small reminder. Guys, buy a calendar. March will be your favorite month. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. This is Liza. Emma, darling. Naked Jim. And let's get out of here. Cool, cool. cool.